Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Live with Doug. My name is Doug, and we are live on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, thinking through God's Word together. And hopefully, Lord willing, our connection will not give us any problems today as we experienced yesterday. Thank you, Chris and Paul, for uh, letting me know that things are cruising along on your end. Hope that uh, continues. So we are diving into Romans 11, and I expect that today... Tomorrow, and depending on how far we get, maybe even into next week, uh, this is going to be a new journey for some of you. So uh, let's get into it and uh, just stay with me. It's, if you've never, if you've never seen this before, it's uh, it's going to be challenging for you, especially if you were taught something significantly different, which many of you have been. I don't know. I shouldn't say that. I can't assume on, on that I know where everybody's coming from. But many Christians, in fact, most Christians, I would say, of the last hundred years have been taught something quite different. And uh, so just just come along with me. Let's look at the text. And then uh, you don't have to agree with me, obviously. Uh, you have the right to believe what you think is correct. But anyway, let's dive in. We are in Romans 11. And asking the question, what about Israel? And I want to draw your attention back to the time reference in Paul, just quickly to show you that Paul is talking about his day here in uh, chapter 11, verse 28. Oh, that's not where I wanted to go, but it's where we're coming in a minute. Verse 5, he says, in the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's choice. So he's... He's talking about his day and God preserving some Jews, and then the rest were hardened, right? And then in verse 28, and we will come back and look at this in context, but I just want you to, to see the time reference here. From the standpoint of the gospel, they, the Jews, are enemies for your sake, you Romans, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. And verse 30, for just as you Gentiles once were disobedient, but now, Paul's day, have been shown mercy because of their Jews' disobedience. So these also now, Paul's day, these Jews have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you Gentiles, they Jews also may now be shown mercy. All right, you got all that? And I just got to keep reminding us of the uh, of the time reference because they are important for at least the view of Romans 11 here that I'm going to present. So let's go back to the uh, the immediate verses that we are looking at, 25 and 26 and so on. For I do not want you brothers, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. All right, let me test you. Someone uh, who didn't answer this already, I think it was either James or I forget who, somebody answered this correctly the other day. So if you did it, then let someone else do it. Someone else, tell me, what is a mystery in the Bible? When you see this word mystery, it's a very, very important word in multiple texts, especially in the New Testament, but a couple places in the Old Testament, like in Daniel. When you see mystery, you need to not think Sherlock Holmes, not think a whodunit, a problem that needs to be solved, a conundrum, anything like that, the things that we call mysterious, unexplainable. That's not what the word mystery means in the scripture. It has a very specific meaning. And I, and I showed you this from the scripture itself a couple lessons ago. So anybody who's on here today, do you remember, do you know 
what the word mystery means. And while uh, I know there's a delay, so while I'm waiting for someone to get it right, because I know somebody will, because you are good students, let me go on and, and talk a little bit more about this verse. So I do not want you brothers to be uninformed of this mystery, uh, so that, it, and he gives a real pastoral warning or, or admonition here. He, he doesn't want them to be wise in their own estimation. He doesn't want these Gentile Christians to be arrogant, to be wise in their own thinking. So he's going to reveal this mystery. And I see Lon got it not previously known. Paul says revealing, yes, a mystery is something that was hidden in the past. It was there, but it was in hiding. It was covered over. But now that Christ has come, the cover has been lifted off and we see the, the fullness of what is there. Uh, I'm not using a pun on the word fullness here. Anyway, uh, this mystery, what is the mystery? That a partial hardening has happened to Israel. So in Paul's day, he's saying there's a hardening of Israel, that spirit of stupor we talked about, the, the fact that they have eyes, but they could not see Jesus as Messiah. They heard and saw what Jesus did, but they could not accept him as Messiah. They could not receive the righteousness that would have been theirs by faith. They were hardened against it. The vast majority of the Jews wanted Jesus crucified. They thought he was an imposter. They thought he, was, uh, he, he wasn't the kind of Messiah they wanted. So they were hardened against the truth in Paul's day. And we, we know that, right? That, that's, that's so clearly what happened. Paul says that hardening is partial, and there's a time reference here as well, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, we got a little bit of an understanding of what that might be yesterday, if you were with us in Isaiah 59, and maybe you're starting to put some of these pieces together, but we'll, we'll come back and look at that more fully uh, a little bit later, but let's, let's catch what he's going to use as evidence of this here. Verse 26, and so, another very important word, these little words in the Bible are so important, and so, in this way, that's what the word so means, or thus, maybe your Bible says, and so, or in this way, all Israel will be saved. Well, what way? And this is the section we looked at in detail, the deliverer will come from Zion. Remember from Isaiah 59, Isaiah actually wrote, the deliverer will come to Zion, or the redeemer will come to Zion. Paul now reads that as a Christian and tweaks it a little bit to say, I know what that means. That means the redeemer is coming from Zion to remove ungodliness from Jacob. The original context was the deliverer is coming to rescue Jacob. But Paul understands that's ultimately talking about Jesus and coming to deliver Jacob from their sins. And that's how, that is the way that all Israel will be saved. And then also in that context is this statement, this is my covenant with him. Looking forward to the new covenant. Today, we're going to look at this last phrase here. And because of the way this is stacked together, at least in the New American Standard, you see that they're all capital letters and set apart as poetry. So it indicates that these are uh, all quotes. And it may you may think this is all the same quote, but if you go back and look at Isaiah 59, you say, wait a minute, this, this phrase does not follow in on these, so what gives? 
This is actually taken from Isaiah 27. And you read it and say, when I take away their sins, oh, I got that. That's continuing on to talk about the gospel, Jesus coming to deliver them. Or is it? Or is it? This is why I keep telling you, you have to go back and look at the broader context. Uh, I think it was Guatemalan Gorilla. Is that, uh, is that his name? I don't know if you're on with this this morning, but he put a comment yesterday that I didn't get a chance to respond to yet. Uh, is it a, a good rule of thumb when you see quotations from the Old Testament to go back and read a chapter on either side of the quote? Uh, yes, and I would say actually don't just limit yourself to a chapter, but in a prophecy, you want to step back and look at the whole oracle. See if you can see and determine where the oracle begins. And it can be very difficult, especially in English. But even in the Hebrew, it can be difficult to understand. But try to go back and see how how far does this context go? What What's being said in the broader scope could be several chapters uh, to, to get to the point of this one text. So uh, a good place to start may be a chapter on either side of the quote, but don't limit yourself there. Try to catch the broader context. Okay, so this uh, in verse 27 here, the when I take away their sins is from Isaiah 27. And I don't think it means what you think it means. I don't think it's talking about the cross. Let me see if I can show you. Now I'm going to get at it in a roundabout way. You're th- going to think, what in the world? Stay with me. Trust me. Trust me, okay? So we're going to start with Matthew 24. You know this probably, famous passage, famous uh, debated, controversial passage. Uh, we'll, we'll come back and look at this more probably tomorrow or Monday. Let's look at the opening line here. Jesus came out from the temple. So Jesus is in the temple. He comes out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out the temple buildings to him. So we had the Solomon's temple, which was a beautiful, massive structure. It gets destroyed by the Babylonians. Then a little while later, they are allowed uh, to uh, rebuild. The Jews are allowed to rebuild the temple, but you remember there were men who looked at it and mourned and wept because they were alive to see the original temple, and this second temple just is not uh, worthy to be compared. It, it, was, it was small, it just wasn't as, as impacting. By the time of Jesus' day, Herod was a great builder, a great architect. Uh, he, he'd made it again, a massive, gorgeous, world-renowned structure. And so Jesus comes out of that temple and his disciples pointed out, and they're marveling at the temple. It's a big edifice here. Here's what Jesus said. Do you not see all these things? See all these, see the temple, see the whole, the court and everything. Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. Whoa. Take a good look, Jesus says. It's all coming down. The whole temple, it's coming down. So as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen? When is the temple going to be destroyed? And what will be the sign of your coming and the sign of the end of the age? Okay, so here's where you've got to think. Okay. 
The question is when, when's this temple going to be destroyed, right? And, and then what will be the sign of your coming? Now, we've been sort of trained to think second coming, right? Whenever you see the word coming in the New Testament, talking about Jesus in any sense, you think second coming. And that's what they ask, right? What will be the sign of your coming? My question is, is that what the disciples would have asked about the second coming? Did they think he was going to ascend and then come back again? It doesn't seem like it, does it? I mean, how many times did Jesus say he was going to die? And they said, no, you're not. When Jesus was crucified, did they all run down to the tomb, pitch their tents and say, all right, he said he was going to be dead and then three days later he's going to rise again. So we're just going to camp out here and wait and come Sunday morning, it's going to be a great day. No, they were dismayed. They were distraught. When he was arrested, they all fled the scene, right? They didn't get it. They weren't excited about his death and, and didn't believe his resurrection. When he shows up again, they're, they're astonished. They think he's a ghost, right? And then when he ascends, remember, even after the resurrection in Acts 1, he goes up into the clouds and they're just staring up there and the angels show up and say, hey, what are you looking at? He told you this is going to happen and he will come back just as he ascended. That, that seemed like new news to them. So when they ask about his coming here, he's talking about the destruction of the temple and they ask about what will be the sign of your coming. I don't think they're thinking second coming here. I think there must be something else in their mind. And then this question, and what will be the sign of the end of the age? What will be the sign of the end of the age? In their minds, the destruction of the temple means the end of their current Jewish age, right? And they're asking these questions as if they knew something about this. They didn't seem to put together he's going to die and rise again, even though he told them repeatedly and the ascension, all that. But they knew something about the destruction of the temple and the end of the age. Uh, I see a comment here. Let me just take a peek and see what this is. He even went, uh, he want, he, he what? He won't even gone anywhere yet. Why would they think of a second coming? Uh some yeah i don't i don't i don't think the disciples are thinking second coming at this so if not what could they be thinking about well the bible the prophets did discuss the destruction of jerusalem over and over again so let's look at this and this will lead us into the passage we want to look at this morning so back to isaiah 26 to get into isaiah 27 so there's a lot in isaiah 26 it'd be fun to walk through but for now let me just catch this uh, part and, and move on come my people enter into your rooms and close your doors behind you hide for a little while until indignation runs its course so god is saying Go into your room, shut your doors, you're going to hide, and it's in the context of death and resurrection uh, earlier, but we don't have time. But indignation is coming. Indignation is coming. Behold, the Lord is about to come out from his place, 
to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will reveal her bloodshed and will no longer cover her slain. So there's going to be uh, God's wrath. Okay, so far. In that day, the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, with his fierce and great and mighty sword, even Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. Uh, again, th- this is not the kind of thing I can cover quickly, but you, you need to think through and how does the Bible use Leviathan and serpent, and of course, you're going to think dragon, serpent, you're going to think Satan, which is... Not a bad thing to think, but you need to do some digging here. But this is a, a, whatever Leviathan is, it's conjuring up great enemy, right? This fearful uh, destroyer, the the, the serpent, uh, the serpent of the sea, the dragon who lives in the sea, all this. The Lord's going to punish uh, whatever this great power is. In that day, a vineyard of wine, sing of it. Now, if if you know your Isaiah... And you go back to chapter 5, you know that God describes Israel as a vine, a vineyard. And God protected the vineyard, set the vineyard up for great prosperity, great fruit bearing, and it didn't bear any fruit. And God says, therefore, I'm going to destroy the vineyard because it didn't bear fruit. Jesus uh, uh, quotes and alludes to that statement when he rebukes the Jews of his day. There was a precious vineyard protected by God, but... It didn't bear any fruit. So with that in mind from Isaiah 5, the Lord says, In that day a vineyard of wine, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. I'm the keeper of this vine. I water it every moment so that no one will damage it. I guard it night and day. So now he's protecting his his vineyard again. I have no wrath. I have none. He, He just talked about his indignation coming here. He says, I have no wrath. Should someone give me briars and thorns in battle, then I would step on them. I would burn them completely. I'm I'm not going to use them to hurt anyone. I I, I would burn them up. I'm done. My indignation is spent. And then here's an invitation, a, a, a cry. Or let them rely on my protection. Let him make peace with me. Let him make peace with me. Repeated, this repeated refrain, this song, make peace with me. I'm done with my wrath. But there's more. In the days to come, Jacob will take root. Israel will blossom and sprout. And they will fill the whole world with fruit. So you've got Isaiah 5. I created this vineyard. I protected it. I gave it every opportunity to grow and flourish. And it didn't. And I'm going to tear it up and, and destroy it. Indignation is coming. And then another vision my wrath is spent. I'm done. Come make peace with me. And then in the days to come, Jacob is going to be this vine, this vineyard. It's going to take root. Israel is going to blossom and sprout and the whole world will be filled with the fruit of Jacob and Israel. Do you see this? Worldwide peace and fruitfulness and blessing from God. And then a very strange turn of events here. The very next verse, verse 7. Like the striking of him who has struck them, has he struck them? Or like the slaughter of his slain, have they been slain? And 
you scratch your head and say, what the, What do I do with all these pronouns? Who's the him? Who's the they? The NAS here is uh, doing a little interpreting for you rather than translating and, and putting capital H's on, on some words here for him and he. Okay, so this is hard. It's hard even in the Hebrew. It's hard in the Septuagint, the Greek version. Uh, this is difficult. But uh, let me see if I can, I'm, I'm not going to try to argue for a position here. Let me just tell you what I think it means. I think what the question is being asked is, God has struck all these other nations, right? His indignation has come upon uh, many, many uh, peoples, all the peoples of the earth. And, and Isaiah has been seeing God's judgment on all these nations who uh, were violent against Judah and Israel. And that's been his, his MO uh, throughout all of history. He, he judges nations and especially those who offend his people. And so now Isaiah sees something happening to Jacob. He sees God's punishment of Judah, Jerusalem, and Israel and, and exile, right? This is all before the exile. And Isaiah has been seeing God's judgment on his people as they go into exile. So he's asking the question, is God going to strike Israel, Jacob, in the same way that he struck all the other nations? Is he going to slaughter his people in the same way that he slaughtered all the other people? And the answer is a surprising yes. Yes, he is. He says, you contended with them by banishing them. You've contended with people, with your enemies, by driving them away into exile, by bringing forces, other nations on them and taking the sword and just slaughtering in mass. That's the way you've done it. With his fierce wind, he has expelled them on the day of the east wind. And that, that's other imagery that he's used. The east wind comes and just blows everyone away. Okay, you see that? Contention by God, banishing exile, driving them away, fierce wind, the day of the east wind. Therefore, through this, through this, that this is referring to contention, banishing, driving away, exile, fierce wind. Through this, Jacob's iniquity will be, and here's where the NAS is doing some, some interpreting, not translating. This word here is atoned for. They've translated forgiven, but the word is atoned for. And I stress that because for your sins to be atoned is not quite the same thing as for your sins to be forgiven. There are two ways that a person's sins can be atoned for. The word atonement, uh, and, and I don't want to get too technical here, but the word atonement in the scripture is not quite synonymous with forgiveness, even though we use them synonymously. And when we think about 
Christians and are putting our faith in Jesus and our sins are atoned for, the benefit, excuse me, the benefit of that for us is our sins are forgiven. So it's easy to make that leap, but let's get, let's just be precise with the language here. Atonement is, uh, is from the word propitiation. And that's not a, a word that you probably used yesterday or last week or last month. Propitiation means to make propitious. It means to make favorable, means to, to set aside, to assuage uh, the wrath of a deity. And there are a lot of Christians who don't like that because, I shouldn't say, I don't, I don't know if I can call them Christians. There are a lot of professing Christians, especially theologians, who uh, don't like the word propitiation because they, they say, wait, you're describing God as an angry God who is furious with, furious with sinners, whose, whose anger must be assuaged. And if there's not some sacrifice given to him, then he's just going to be this uh, fly off the handle, uh, enraged tyrant who's going to kill everyone. That's how the Greek gods were, right? Well, Certainly, we don't portray God as this out-of-control, uh, bloodthirsty God. But if you read the Bible at all, what is clear is he is a holy God who's a just God who must punish sin, who will punish sin, who delights in punishing sin. And his wrath must be assuaged. That's what the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament was about. God accepting the sacrifice of the animals in place of his people who deserve to die for their sin. And God says, I will accept the death of these animals in the place of humans. But then the writer of Hebrews comes along and tells us the blood of bulls and goats could never actually atone for the sins of humanity. There had to be a man who was righteous without spot or blemish, who's the Lamb of God who is sacrificed for sinful man. That's Jesus. And God pours out his anger and his wrath on his son instead of you and me, if we put our faith in Jesus. Right? That's the heart of the gospel. God is just and the justifier of those who believe in him. I said there are two ways your sins can be atoned for. There are two ways for God's wrath to be satisfied regarding your sin and mine. One way is for his wrath to be poured out on Jesus. The alternative is for his wrath to be poured out on you and me. Every sin that has ever been committed in the history of mankind Every sin will be punished. Every sin will be atoned for. For Christians, our sins are atoned for in our substitute, in Jesus. For non-believers, they will atone for their own sins by taking God's wrath upon themselves. See that? So the word atonement, propitiation, satisfying God's wrath, is not equal to forgiveness. Now, if you're following me, then you'll see why I'm stressing it as we get to the, back to Isaiah 27 here. Therefore, through this, what's the this? 
the contention, the banishing, the exile, the fierce wind expelling them on the day of the east wind. Through that, Jacob's iniquity will be atoned for. And this will be the full price of the, and this again, NAS here is, is doing more uh, interpreting than translating. This word means to turn aside, not pardon. This will be the full price of the turning aside of Jacob's sin. So Jacob's iniquity will be, a, will be atoned for, and his sin will be turned aside by a full price. Well, what is it? You expect it to be, because you're Christians, you expect it to say something about the coming sacrifice of the Messiah or something like that. Look what he says. When he makes all the altar stones like pulverized chalk stones... Do you see this? Um, I'm being told that my screen is still showing Romans. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah, I was intently. I don't know why that is happening. Uh, technology. This is, this is, I'm sorry. Sorry, that is true. Let me, uh, hmm. man, I was just right at that place too. Still showing Romans. I see that now. Um, I'm not sure what to do about that. Why would that be happening? Uh, this is like, you know, in the middle of a sermon when, uh, did that change something? When, uh, all right, I think I got it. Did I get it? So that's Luke now. All right, I apologize. I hope you're able to track with me, even though it couldn't show. So it's like the middle of a sermon when, you know, I've had, well, anyway, interruptions. <laughs> so for those of you who are watching who, uh, who needed this, so he keeps saying, you continued with them, you banished them, fierce wind, through this, through that contention, banishing, fierce wind, expelling, expulsion, Jacob's iniquity will be, and this is the word that is atoned for, and this is the word pardoning here, that is the word to, to turn away, turn aside. How will Jacob's iniquity be atoned for? What is the full price of the turning away of his sin? It's here. When he makes all the altar stones like pulverized chalk stones. This is talking about the destruction of the temple, I think. When ashram and incense altars will not stand, uh, the Jews continued to put, uh, to, to use the temple for idolatry. Ezekiel saw this vision of the idolatry that uh, the Jews were committing in the, in the temple. What I think Isaiah is foreseeing here is the destruction of Jerusalem, and in particular, the temple, which happened in 586, after Isaiah sees this vision, But in Daniel 9, 
the angel Gabriel comes and shows to Daniel that after they rebuild the temple, 70 years or so after the destruction of Jerusalem in 586, after they rebuild the temple, the, temp- the sanctuary is going to be destroyed again. The temple is going to be wiped out again. And that's what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24. And the disciples know that is coming because they have Isaiah. They've read Isaiah. They know this. And Jesus says, you see these stones, not one stone will be left on another. And they start asking the questions, when and what's the sign of your coming to destroy the temple? Because if you know Daniel 9, it predicts that the prince, the Messiah, will come and destroy the temple and the end of the age that God's going to put an end to the Jews. One more thing from Isaiah 27. For the fortified city is isolated, a homestead forlorn and forsaken like the desert. So when this time comes, when it's all pulverized and destroyed, the altar is no more, then the city is going to be forsaken. The calf will graze there. Uh, there it will lie down and feed on its branches. It's going to be destitute of people, desolate as the word is. When its limbs are dry, they are broken off. Women come and make a fire with them, for they are not a people of discernment. Therefore, their maker will not have compassion on them, and their creator will not be gracious to them. You see here, this is not a scene of grace and compassion here. The question started, and I I apologize for the technical difficulty. I hope that didn't distract you. And if it did, go back and listen to it with, with, with this open. The question is being asked, is God going to strike them, his people, the same way he struck all the other nations? The answer is yes. He's going to destroy their cities, burn them down, wipe them out. The limbs are dry. This people, God's people, are not a people of discernment. Their maker will not have compassion on them. Their creator will not be gracious to them. Judgment is coming. Then he says, In that day, the Lord will start his threshing from the flowing stream of the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered up one by one, O sons of Israel. Do you see? The destruction of Jerusalem is not the end of the story. From that day forward, he goes out into the whole world, and what does he do? He gathers the sons of Israel. They've been banished and driven out, the city's destroyed, and then he starts calling them back. It will all come about also in that day that a great trumpet will be blown and those who were perishing in the land of Assyria, who were scattered in the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord in the holy mountain at Jerusalem. And we start putting all these pieces together and foresee that after the destruction of Jerusalem and the pulverizing of the altar stones and God's satisfying his wrath and atoning for the sins of Jacob by destroying the city and the temple, then God sends out at the trumpet sound his angels. Well, it doesn't say angels here, but he's gathering his sons together. Go back and read Matthew 24 with this in mind and see if you can put the pieces together. What I think is going on here in Romans 11 is that Paul is putting these two passages together and saying, I'm revealing something that's mysterious, something that was hidden, and I'm now disclosing to you. Israel's hearts are hardened in his day, in Paul's day, 
until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And we will come back and look at that phrase. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. How? The deliverer will come from Zion, the redeemer, that's Jesus. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. I believe that is the cross. I believe that is the atonement work. And he will make this new covenant of peace with them. All of that from Isaiah 59. And then here, when I take their sins away, quoting from Isaiah 27, and we looked at that, remember the phrasing there is, he's going to atone for, turn away their sins by destroying the city. The full and final destruction on the sins of Israel. Remember Jesus, we looked at this way early on in this uh, study, the sins of, of Israel. Jesus said, upon you, upon this generation, his, Jesus' generation, upon this generation will come all the sins of God's people all the way back to Abel and Cain, that era. But all the, the things the prophets, all the things that the Jews did to the prophets, it's all coming on the heads of this generation. 70 A.D., when the Roman general Titus brought the armies against the city of Jerusalem and decimated it, burned down the, the city and the temple and all that, is what Isaiah 27 was talking about, I believe. And what he what Paul's quoting here in, in Romans eleven twenty seven. And that's what Jesus was talking about in Luke twenty one and Matthew twenty four, when he says, All the stones of this great temple you see are going to be toppled. And that's going to be the end of the Jewish age. And that's when he's coming in judgment against Israel. And Paul is tying that event, which happened just a few years after he wrote Romans, he's tying that event with the fullness of the Gentiles and the hardening being lifted. All right, our time has has flown by. Let me uh, see a couple of your comments here and then we'll call it a day. Uh, Janice says Luke 21 20 uh, also speaks of the destruction of Jerusalem yep we will come back to that good Karen says yes but he says he'll be coming in the clouds and verse yeah we'll come back and look at that um, propitiation is not mentioned once in the Old Testament yeah I know you keep saying that Peter I uh, I, I just disagree um, clearly says that he will, the atonement will come through the warfare and exile of yeah well obviously I see this differently. Uh, yeah, Lon says that is heavy stuff. Indeed, indeed it is. Stay with me. Keep wrestling through this and we'll unpack some more of this tomorrow. Have a great day. God bless.